Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 3. We'll be reading both chapter 3 and chapter 4 today. Most commentators identify three distinct units within the thought and structure of this book as a whole. Chapters 1 to 3 focus on the marriage metaphor, and they are therefore filled with biographical information about the strange and strained relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Chapters 4 to 11 contain a lengthy indictment wherein God details all the sins and idolatries of Israel And then in the last section, running from chapter 12 through to the end of the book, we have some historical illustrations and a call to authentic repentance. If that sense of the structure is correct, then today's readings place us right on top of a major hinge between the first and second sections of the book. In chapter 3, we will observe God commanding Hosea to do unto Gomer as God has just said that he will do unto Israel. In chapter 2, God laid out a long, detailed plan intended to chastise, refine, limit, and ultimately woo back Israel to himself. And now he tells the prophet to do much the same toward his wayward wife. And that will end the biographical section of the book and will largely, though not exclusively, retire the marital metaphor. And then right after that, we will move into a more straightforward prophetic indictment of the sins of the nation in chapter 4. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. We won't stop for good here, but just the cakes of raisins. God is not against Christmas cake or anything else. These cakes of raisins were associated with Canaanite religion. Okay, so don't be thrown off by that. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days." So again, this is God telling Hosea to do unto Gomer as God has just said he will do unto Israel. He is going to go to extraordinary lengths in order to reestablish the purity and integrity of their original covenant union. Now, this would be a good time to zoom out. Whenever you're reading a book like Hosea, you have to be constantly zooming in and out. These Tree-level verses only make sense and only have their full effect when we zoom out and remember the forest-level story that we are inside of. 
The big picture story here is that Israel is headed for national disaster, national disintegration, actually. This story takes place in the 8th century BC. The people of God are divided, and they have been since the days of Rehoboam. There is Israel in the north and Judah in the south. When Israel split off from Judah, their first king, Jeroboam, knew that he would have to alter the religion of the nation if he was going to maintain his political hold over the people. If all of his citizens went down to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts, then they would be constantly reminded that we're all supposed to be one big happy family, and they would be constantly bumping into kings from the line of David And sooner or later, someone would figure out that northern Israel was a serious departure from the original plan and design of God. So Jeroboam set up two regional worship centers, and he modified the Jewish religion so that it no longer centered around the temple in Jerusalem, because that was in the south. And he modified it further so that it didn't require the ministry of the Levites anymore because they had all, or mostly all, migrated down to the south. So he cut out the temple and he cut out the priesthood and he modified the worship by incorporating elements of pagan fertility rituals and other things associated with the Canaanite religion of their neighbors. So the religion in the north became syncretistic. They worshiped God, but in the way of the nations. That was step one in their decline. But it didn't end there. Pretty soon, they were worshiping the gods of the nations alongside of the God of Israel, Yahweh. That's where this metaphor of whoredom comes in. Israel was like a wife of whoredom. She was not being faithful to her original covenant relationship. So Hosea says that if she doesn't return and repent now, then she will undergo a severe scourging and a severe purging. It will literally shock the world when they see what lengths God will go to in order to refine the sin out of her heart and renew the covenant intimacy that was originally supposed to exist between God and his people. So that's the big picture. And so God says to Hosea, go and shock your world with an outrageous effort to woo and win your whorish wife. What Israelite man would go and buy back his cheating wife out of whoredom? She left you. She shamed you. She should be stoned according to the law, but you go and buy her back. Then you impose some limits on her. You're going to have to put her through detox, as it were. It's going to be awful. You're going to have to literally leech the sin out of her. And then you're going to have to woo her and win her all over again. You're you're going to have to treat her hard, and then you're going to have to treat her soft in order to win back her affection. And everyone watching this dramatic saga is going to think you have lost your mind. They're going to say that this is too much effort, that there is too much grace here. They're not going to understand. But when they ask you about it, you tell them about me. That's what's going on here. So Hosea goes and buys his wife out of whoredom. We don't get too many details here, which is probably a good thing. But she was obviously 
owned in some sense by someone who rented her out as a whore. And Hosea buys her back and puts her under house arrest, basically, and severely restricts her access to the world, all of which, she is told, symbolizes the coming exile and scattering that God has in store for the nation. They will be locked away. They will be cut off. They will be in detox, as it were, because God is taking extreme measures to renew the covenant. And now we learn why that is necessary. Chapter 4 begins a detailed listing of all the sins and idolatries of Israel. We start reading at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So basically here, God says that Israel has broken every commandment in the book. And they are utterly deficient in terms of everything that matters to the Lord. He says there's, there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. The word translated there as faithfulness means truth, honesty, or reliability. The word rendered as steadfast love means covenant loyalty. So God here is saying, I don't believe a word that comes out of your mouth, and I don't trust you. You are a cheater and a liar at heart. That's not good in a marriage, and that's not good in terms of right religion. And then God says, I think the most serious thing of all, he says, you don't even know me, right? There is no knowledge of God in the land. Now, to know God in the Bible means to act in a way that would please him. You have to know him to please him. Again, Jeremiah picked this up as he picked up many things from Hosea. He said to a king in his day in the south, a couple of generations later, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 22, 15 to 16. See, if you know the Lord, then you act in a way that pleases him. But you don't know the Lord, God says. You don't know me. And that's the problem. Verse 4. Yet, let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So here we discover that the religious leaders in Israel are largely to blame for the sins of the nation. Because they haven't been proper priests and prophets to the people, the people as a whole cannot be priests and prophets to the world. And that's the problem. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. But instead, they have become just like the nations, which is why 
this severe scourging and purging is required. Verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Now, some of the wording is very difficult here and hard to translate, but the general sense is very straightforward. As the nation increased in prosperity, it correspondingly increased in idolatry and wickedness. The religious establishment, far from calling the people back, far from being a force of reform, actually, these folks became ringleaders in the rebellion. And therefore, judgment will fall equally upon them all. Verse 11 is very interesting. It says basically that idolatry and wealth take away understanding. The more you give yourself to wrong thoughts about God, and the more you pursue riches apart from God, the less you are able to hear and respond to the actual voice of God calling you to repentance. There is a massively important lesson there for us. Walking away from God is like walking into a tunnel in a mountain. The deeper in you go, the less able you are to hear the voices calling you out and home. And that is a warning we would all do well to take to heart. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. God is basically saying here that his people are whores at heart. There is an inward bent to them. And, and that's why the new covenant, when it is more fully articulated in Jeremiah, will be so inwardly focused. Because the problem is inside. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah will ask. And therefore, the essence of the new covenant is a regenerated heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Verse 13. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. The Canaanite rituals that appear in the background here were sexual in nature, obviously. Most worship of fertility gods and goddesses in that part of the world at that time uh, was perverse in the extreme, and the people of God had become entangled in these things. And evidently, their daughters specifically had become entangled in these things. Young women of Israel, covenant daughters, were serving as temple prostitutes at some of these pagan shrines. It was an outrage. And yet here God says that he will hold the fathers responsible, not the daughters. The men were responsible 
for the religious direction of the nation. They made bad choices and their daughters now were being caught up in the consequences. Isn't that so often the case? And God says he will hold the men responsible. If you're a man hearing that in our generation, hear that as the warning and the threat, I think, that it is. God holds men accountable for the spiritual temperature in their home, in their churches, and I would say to some extent, even in the nation. Verse 15, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Now, once again, we need to zoom out here to really understand. Remember, Hosea is called the deathbed prophet because he prophesies to Israel just in advance of their dissolution as a people. Over the course of his ministry, many faithful people in Israel began migrating south into Judah in order to avoid the catastrophe that he was speaking about. But it seems that his message was rejected by the leadership. And so everything he prophesied here does in fact come about. But Hosea and his message went down to Judah. And after the southern kingdom saw all that God did in the north, the hope was that Judah would reform and avoid a similar fate. Okay, so zoom back in. That's exactly what is being said here. Let not Judah become guilty. Let the younger sister learn from the older sister's fate. Don't go down this adulterous and idolatrous road. Verse 16, like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So Israel is a headstrong cow, Hosea says. How then can it expect to be treated like a gentle lamb? That's the concluding metaphor here. Israel is stubbornly and wickedly committed to this stupid and sinful path. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. It is a wind of madness, and it hurries them toward death and disaster. And so tough love is the only answer. That's a hard passage and a hard lesson. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.